Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Let's do a little word association, listener. When I say PBR, what's the first thing you think of? Hipsters? Skaters? Welders? Yuppies who kind of want to seem like hipsters, skaters, or welders? <laughs> hmm. Pabst Blue Ribbon has been sold in these United States since the late 1800s. You probably had it. It's fine. Nothing special. But around the turn of the 21st century, as Anheuser-Busch and Miller Brewing Company bludgeoned each other with slick ads and multi-million dollar marketing budgets, and Gen Xers started moving into warehouse districts on the outskirts of major American cities, something changed. People started drinking PBR. Like, cool people. And a lot of PBR. What happened next would become the stuff of brewing industry lore. This middling lager became the hottest countercultural lifestyle accessory since Chuck Taylors or not having a Facebook page. It stood for authenticity, creativity, tenacity. Whatever you wanted it to be, your can of PBR was happy to oblige. It was the sort of word of mouth indie sleaze cachet that big corporate beer brands would kill for. And as Blue Ribbon went mainstream in the aughts, and especially after bankers destroyed the U.S. housing market in 2008, giving millions of Americans an unwelcome taste of downward mobility, Pabst Brewing Company found itself at the helm of a serious heater. But how do you, a corporation, keep the momentum going when your beer's popularity is based on how not corporate it seems? Here to talk about this vexing PBR paradox is Steve Sticks Nilsson. These days, he's the vice president of Colt Indoctrination at Liquid Death, but from 2009 to 2018, he was part of the lifestyle marketing team at Pabst, taxed with boosting Blue Ribbon's bona fides in the scene, like every scene, without going bust. It's PBR, it's Sticks Nilsson, it's the Blue Ribbon hipster halo, and it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. Yes! The show is Tap Lines. The guest is none other than Steve Sticks Nilsson. I, of course, am your host, Dave Infante. We have got a ripper of an episode in front of us, Sticks. Welcome to Tap Lines. Well, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Sticks, where are you joining us from? Evergreen, Colorado. So I'm, li- I'm, I'm about 8,000 feet here on the side of a mountain, but um, it's been home for 23 years. So I figured out the work remote thing quite a while ago, as I always tell people. Yeah, right on. I mean, Evergreen may be your home, but uh, you are traveling the country and to some extent the globe uh, in service of getting delicious beverages uh, into the hands of people who crave them. And we're going to talk all about that, of course. Um, But for our Taplines listeners who are just catching up and don't know uh, Sticks, we we need to tell them a little bit about who you are, man. Uh, You know, they know you're living in Colorado. They know you have a very cool nickname because, you know, there are a lot of Steves in the world, but there's only one Sticks. But the reason you're on the show today is to talk about some of those beverages. Um, You currently are the vice president of what's called Cult Indoctrination at a little brand uh, that folks may have heard of called Liquid Death. Um, That Cult Indoctrination, I think, is more or less uh, in the same lane as lifestyle marketing, but I'm sure there are some other dark arts associated with it that I'd love to hear about. Um, but the reason that you're here on Taplines, a beer show, is because 
for a long time, almost a decade, you were working at another brand that's very near and dear to the American drinking public's heart and, you know, sort of like shaping that uh, legacy, that, that, that brand aura or mythos, that cult, so to speak. I'm talking, of course, about Pabst Blue Ribbon. When, uh, when did you start at Pabst Sticks? 2009 was when I started. And um, it's all because of a guy named Brian Clark. And um, it came to be, really, this is essentially not many people know the story, how I ended up there was I was actually one of the first sports marketing managers at Red Bull. A little thing called Red Bull. Nobody knew what it was. Yeah, not a little brand home. that that folks yeah, may yeah. have heard of. Yeah, yeah, and it was, but that was tw- almost twenty years ago, and nobody, there was no other energy drinks, nothing else. So fast forward to make a very long story short, toward the end of my tenure at Red Bull, before I left to go to Pabst, I had these world class athletes that I was working with, and we'd have you know typical Red Bull fashion, bottle service, crazy town, right? I mean, I, had ex- mm, I mean, mm. again, I had big big budgets, but they were always requesting this thing called Pabst Blue Ribbon, and I remember. Like many consumers, I was in my head going, wait, wait, that's the shit we drank in college. What? Why do you, I could, I could get you any bottle of liquor you want and you're asking (laughs) for, you're asking for paps. And so it was just really intrigued, but we're talking like the skaters, the snowboarders, the surfers, and these, you know, for all intents and purposes, the cool kids. And they're like, we got to have paps. And so we're in this beautiful, like they're, they're called energy stations. So we'd be at, it could be F1, it could be a motocross event, it could be a surf event. Rebel basically has these mobile structures. And next thing you know, there's Pabst Blue Ribbon cans everywhere. And I was like, what? What? Like, yeah. And his name is Brian Clark. And basically, he's connected and said, hey, I, I've heard of you. We're, you know, I'm, I'm now running this thing, Pabst Blue Ribbon, and I'd want to talk to you. And I said, yeah. Hey, it was just real happenstance. Yeah, yeah. And basically, it was, it was located, Pabst was located at the time in Woodbridge, Illinois, which mm-hmm. is literally outside of Chicago. And it was in a strip mall, basically. It was crazy. Like, you walk in, <laughs> and it's all this memorabilia. They had the um, big wagon that they used to have. They carry, you know, Pabst. But the mem- it, was, it was like walking into a museum of Pabst yeah. Blue Ribbon. But then what, people, what I didn't realize is, is the portfolio that Pabst Brewing has on it. And that's a whole other thing we can talk about, all the other yep, brands. Yep. I, I dabbled in those as well. But that's literally how it happened. And we shook hands and he's he and I just, I could tell he got along well. He's a very bright guy, very well educated. And he was like, you know, I need you. I'm just not sure how. And I had to come up with a job description, but that's literally how I started at Pabst. And note to everyone, like you never know where these leads are going to lead you. And this is something where Brian and I hit it off and the rest is history, which we can chat about. But that's literally how it came to be. It was, it was just very viral, very got to have this brand, but no one knew why it was just the brand yeah. to have, you know, the dream for marketers, 100%. cool kids are talking about the brand. You don't know why you need to know and you go figure it out. Yep. hundred percent. Very cool. So this is 2009 that you joined Paps. And just to set the scene here, the concept of extreme sport athletes was worth its weight in gold at this time in the aughts coming out of the late nineties. Like this is the nexus of, you know, sort of the vanguard of, the intersection of sport and culture at that time. The X Games are huge. You know, Red Bull being in the middle of it, or or you're starting to like rub up against you know this core of of extreme sport athletes, of of you know skaters, snowboarders, whatever, um, and seeing them drink PBR. That means that PBR is in the right place uh, at the right time, right? Like this is this is exactly where a brand wants to be right then. Yep, hundred percent. And I, I don't think big brands realize right now. Because we had other beer brands take runs at us mm-hmm. because they saw the success we were having. Right. And we were successful because we weren't telling people what PAPS is. We were letting them right. decide for themselves. And these big beer brands, we'd always said we, we ruled 
the sub premium, you know, we were, it was bigger than the liquid. It was the brand. You had that can in your hand. You were instantly the cool kid in the room. That was the idea. Right. Was, right? right. But we didn't plan it. And let's, I need to make something clear beginning of this whole thing. Please. As much as I appreciate you having me on this show, which I respect what you guys do. I was a cog in the wheel. Like we had an amazing group of people and there's not one individual on this earth that can stand out and say, I, I was, perhaps this is a success because of me. Just because there's been a few things I popped up here and there and, and some of us OG are like, what is that person saying? Like they, they're not yeah, yeah. using why I have. So I need to make that clear that as much as I appreciate, I'm, but I'm standing here talking to you all to, to flying the flag for all my friends that I work with because we're still dear friends and a lot of them gone. So I had to clear the air there that as much as I appreciate being on, I had a very wonderful platform to work with and was able to use some of my skills and some of my experience, but we had some amazing salespeople. We had some amazing people in operations. I mean, woman by the um, Gigi, she literally processed all of our, basically handled finance. And she'd been there since like 1979. Yeah. But she also was the first one that would ask me for tickets to Pantera. You know what I mean? So she was like, that is hell, awesome. Hell you know yeah, I mean? Gigi. You know what I mean? Yeah, Gigi. And she just <laughs> retired. Gigi Wayback just retired after, since 1979. Not kidding. They did a big party for her. And I went, actually got sent photos. All of us were alumni. And we just, so it was like, you can't make this up. And the way it happened, I think the, with PAPS is it was so organic that our job was to make it so we weren't going to screw up the momentum. Mm-hmm. Because you just said it earlier, brands would die for word of mouth because there's nothing more powerful in the world. And when people were like, that was the brand to have, that's why you had it in the head. I still can't fully explain it to you, but the stars aligned, right? Yeah. Recession yeah. happened. People were on money, sadly, good or bad, where everyone look at it, liquor and alcohol yep. sales go up yep. when there's a bad event. And so there was a lot of things that happened there. And I just kind of wanted to clear the air a little bit that I'm, I'm happy to be a, a mouthpiece for my my team and the people that I work with. And yeah, yeah. There's, there's still a few there, to be honest with you. There's still a few who have been there in quite for quite a long time, actually. But, um, you know, it was amazing time. And I'm, I'm proud to say I was a part of it. Right on. No, thanks for the clarification. And yeah, a whole, a whole gang uh, that put it together. And we're very glad to have you on Taplines representing, uh, to some extent, informally, that whole team uh, that was working to make Blue Ribbon ubiquitous across these United States. Sticks, I want to, you know, put a little context around this, put a little definition around this. And I, in research for this episode, um, I went back and I read uh, some contemporary reporting at, you know, both from your time at PAPS and then predating your time at PAPS to sort of get a feel for what the brand was doing and, and sort of where it was at, you know, during this formative era. So I'm talking about like, you know, basically through the aughts from, from 2000 to, you know, 2010, you know, you join right at the end of the decade. At the beginning of the decade, PBR is already on the upswing. And I'm, I'm going to quote here from a big article that I'm sure you're familiar with. It ran in the New York Times Magazine in 2003. The title was The Marketing of No Marketing. And I'm going to quote from it here. Um, quote, Pabst Blue Ribbon, PBR as fans call it, is currently enjoying a highly unlikely comeback. In 2002, sales of the beer, which had been sinking steadily since the 1970s, actually rose 5.3%. From the start of 2003 through April 20th, Supermarket beer sales are up another 9.4%. It's endorsed in the Hipster Handbook, a paperback dissection of cool, and is popping up at trendy bars from the Mission District to the Lower East Side, close quote. So that's in 2003. This this predates your time there, but this is the wave as it starts sort of picking up speed. And I'd love to you know start our story there or, or chat through a little bit what the brand is doing before you get there a little bit to the extent that you know you're aware of it I'm sure because you come and you pick up 
um, where it left off in 2009. I want to just understand when you come in, what immediately predates, where are you picking PBR up? Well, well, honestly, it was, was, to your point, the wave had already started. And I thought I wanted to step back from my position and see what had gotten it there. Best way I could make sense of that, right? Yep, yep. And for me, the easiest, I guess, route to follow was, was to talk to my friends in skate, skateboarding. And I noticed that skaters have really wrapped their hands around it. And it's amazing to me the amount of brands that have screwed up trying to get involved in skateboarding. But if you look at it, high fashion copies <laughs> right, of skaters right. look like, you've always got these you know, gals who have the skater boyfriend. You know, I mean, there was, God rest his soul, Dylan Reeder, one of my favorite skaters ever. The dude had model looks, right? Mm, and he'd be mm. invited to like, red carpet events in Fashion Week in New York City. Sure. And he had the look, right? The leather jacket, had the hair, had everything. Like, then he's an amazing skater. But that, that guy was like, to me, epitomizes what it was. It was like street cool, but did it his own way. And it was kind of that's the ethos we had of like, we don't want to screw this up. So we're going to kind of allow, like, if I would just watch from a distance, like, why is this infiltrating, that's your point, action sports, art, music. And we were just <laughs> there. And it's, it, was, it was popping up. But I think a big part of it was consumers we're going, you know what? I'm not getting this shoved on my throat. There's not sampling people handing it out every month. They're not handing out crappy right, 50-50 right. t-shirts. You know what I mean? There's no <laughs> slogan anywhere. There's no banner blasted anywhere. It was like the cool kids, you know, you were the cool kid in the room. That, yeah. Like I said previously, that was the accessory. How that happened, I don't think there's one person that could say this happened. It was very, very, and again, it's an overused marketing term. It was very viral. It was very organic. Mm-hmm. Again, you cannot put a price on that. But what the thing is, is you need to get people in place that are going to protect that, which Mm. a lot of people don't want to say no this day and age. They want to say yes. They want to be the cool kid. They want to be able to, and there's too many yes people out there, not thinking at all how that's going to affect your brand. And so I think we were so hypersensitive to not goof up this momentum. So when I joined, yes, the wave was happening. It was, okay. This wave over of like the brand. Then I thought, okay, how are we going to, we're going to get into people's hands that other brands wouldn't be able to do. And they would do it inauthentically. And so for me, when mm. someone say, well, what definition of what you do? I credibly integrate brands into scenes that other brands try to buy their way in. That's what I do. So if I use Thrasher Magazine as an example, we go back to skate. Those guys asked for beer when I heard that was there because they're friends. Oh my God, we, want, we need beer for this, this, and this. I would get them beer and walk away. I never gave them a sticker, never gave them a hat, never gave them, let them. It, it was so credible to have them spread it out and do it. And so many brands don't get that. They'll say, here's the product and here's our checklist, what you have to deliver. No one, especially skaters, want to be told what right. to do. And if you say you've got to post right. and you've got to be a photo and you've got to do this, that's immediately a big F you from skate. Yeah, that just nobody likes that. Yeah, no, uh, totally. Right. Like this is, and this is also the era where Anheuser Busch, through most of the aughts, remains under family control. They're the big heavyweight in the industry. Miller uh, is, you know, the other big guy. And then Coors obviously comes on pretty strong as well. These are, these are very comparatively, very corporate, um, you know, sort of juggernauts that AB in particular is, is known at that time for being sort of the, the sharp elbowed, you know, flashy suit folks in the room. August Bush, the fourth is the heir apparent to the company. He's traditionally handsome, slicked back hair, um, you know, grew up with a silver spoon. These are not necessarily the types of people that can walk into a skate shop, can walk into a dive bar or uh, backstage at CBGB or wherever you might, you know, you might wind up and say, hey, like, I just want to be a part of your scene. You know, I'm one of you, right? Like there's a lack of credibility there. There's a lack of um, sort of like 
comfort or or fellow feeling or shared experience when you try to put a Pete Coors or an August Bush the Fourth in uh, you know in, in the editorial newsroom at, at Thrasher Magazine. It just it doesn't go. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. Yeah. And yeah. we didn't have. I went from the penthouse to the poorhouse with budgets. I mean, I had no budget. The other thing everyone has to realize: we didn't use an agency. Like we didn't have anyone deciding mm. that no one was going to decide that the direction we we're going because now trust me in my tenure there, I got hit up by agencies all the time that wanted a piece of, of PBR, but I, they wanted it more for their portfolio sure. to make them cool. And I'm not being arrogant. I'm just being honest. They wanted sure. to have perhaps, but I know they would have effed it up. I know they would have like, they would have all, I would have shown up and they would all have flannels on and fake hormone glasses and perfectly groomed beards <laughs> and they'd act like they knew what they were doing. Right. And I just, they didn't get it. Right. And you know, right, right. the other, the other note, and I speak for my, all my counterparts, as soon as someone used the term hipster around us, that was a huge red flag that you don't get it. Because mm. yes, that, that, you could argue that term came out of the past era when they came through. But to us, that was like douche. You know what I mean? Like you just didn't get it. You were like, to, to name it that, if you want to call, that's fine. And you know what? If hipsters are going to help grow our brand, call whatever you want to call. We don't care. But, but if you approach us with a pitch and you immediately throw hipster out, that shows me that you're, you're, all, you're lazy. Like you're basically just grabbing yeah. it. It's like, see, we're all about skateboarders, you know, not skaters. Like, you know, well, let's go boarding. No, it's snowboarding. You know what right. I mean? Like you don't get it, right? right. You obviously haven't right. done it. And, and, and big brands, again, like you just said, the analogy I always use, I've used this over and over again, is that we were a little wakeboard boat in the ocean, right? We were very nimble. We could get around, we could do things. And the big beer brands were like aircraft carriers. And for anyone who knows what an aircraft carrier, it takes miles to turn one of those things, right? Sure. So they'll go, along and go, oh my God, skateboarding, art, punk rock's cool. Let's do that. And they start turning. By then, we've already not only been there, but we're writing FU on their hull on the way by. Like we were just, <laughs> that's the way we operated. You're tacking back. Yeah, right, And they right. would, so they had so many approval processes and so many ways to get something pushed through. What happens at any big corporation? You can't blame anyone yep. for that. There's yep. got to be checks and balances. But we didn't answer to anybody. So like we were trusted by Brian Clark, who kind of oversaw the whole problem, like do what your gut tells you. Getting, I like to think we got the right people in there that just knew what was right for the brand. And again, mm-hmm. Warwick was just saying no to things. That was the big part, which is, sounds so elementary. But we did that and we were just so careful. But we would hop on these things and these other big brands. I and mean, like I'd said earlier, they would throw one of their sub-premium brands at us to try to attack our what we were doing in our momentum. Yeah. And it just didn't work. They were buying tap handles with a brand that had no brand equity whatsoever. Yep. And so the bar owner stuck. He's like, whoa, they're giving me, and this happened in LA. And I'm not even going to give credit to this. It was such a lame brand under one of the big beer brands. And they were buying tap handles from the cool bars. Like we were in the shortstop, which is by the Dodgers, the cha-cha lounge, these places. That was cool. Cha-cha lounge. I think you could buy like a throwing star, a tampon and brass knuckles in their vending machine. That's the kind of place Good. it is. Right. Ideal. Yeah, yeah. They would run in <laughs> and, and buy us buy to keep us out. They were buying tap handles. Right, sure. it didn't work. It was short lived. The classic hand to hand combat bullshit that goes on in the beer industry. This is a well established move that the big three have been playing for decades at this point. Right, exactly. And you can't buy cool. And that's the thing is that these bar owners, yeah, it's a cutthroat business. So he gets his 10k. Okay, helps him with his rent for a month or two, and then what? When no one's asking for that cap, then what? And that's what happened. We had a few come crawling back, and we're just like, you know, little slap of the hand, like we love you. We are partners and we're going to support you, but this is a shot over the bow. Don't do that. Okay. You, you just, you basically kicked us to the curb chasing the dollar. And now, and that's how we found our friends were too. But the, the part that was most fulfilling is that we knew we poked the bear. We knew that the big boys were watching us, you know, and that was fun because then it went, we went out of our way to poke the bear. 
with them because we knew we could do things they couldn't do. You know. Okay. Yeah. So so the big guys are coming for your tap handles. They're buying their way in, or at least they're trying to. This doesn't necessarily go very well, but it's still a threat. I mean, ABI. You know, now ABI at that time, Anheuser Busch. And in Miller Coors, now Molson Coors, these are these are companies that may be aircraft carriers that can't turn quickly. Um, but what aircraft carriers can do without any agility is just barrage the shit out of you, right? Like so, so the though these are laughable corporate sort of ham-fisted threats, they're threats nonetheless, right? Like you guys still have to take that seriously. Yeah, we do to a degree, and that's where you know I, I would never write a check for events because I knew, mm. and I can say this now. I knew that we had something pretty much every event needs, and that's alcohol. But more importantly than anything, we had a brand that people wanted. And back yeah. to my point earlier, our goal was to be when you when, when that PAPS logo was on a flyer or when at an event or was at an event, you were at the right place. That was the message. Yeah, yeah. It was like you were the right spot. But part of the success is that is, is how nimble. And so I, you know, the example I always use too is, you know, I could literally the marketing girl we had in New York City. Stuff was hot popping all the time there. And a friend would call and say, yo, Mike D from the Beastie Boys is doing an art show tonight. You guys should be there. And I could call her and say, this is like pre-Uber. And I'd be like, get in a cab with eight cases and get over there now. Go to a mm-hmm. bodega, buy them. And people would be like, how did Pap sniff this out? And then we did that over and over again in cities all around the country because one of the weapons people don't realize we had was we had this, these called market agents where we had in major metros, we had these guys and girls and their job was to be out every single night. And they knew we're the coolest skate shop, tattoo parlor, record store. But if I went to visit the market, we should be able to walk right in the bar without having the ID checked. And they know the, the you know fist pump the owner or the head of the bar or the bar backs. Right. And we never told any of them, this is the slogan you have to tell everyone. This is it. No, they each had their own Instagram handle. However they wanted to do it for their market, spoke to their market. Because what's cool in Kansas City is a lot different than what's cool in Orlando or Miami or where we had these market agents. That's a huge success. When you're speaking to the customers, you're not trying to like fleece them with one blanket statement. It's like, no, again, you decide for yourself what PAPS means to you. And that was it. And then their job was just to cultivate that kind of groundswell, you know, but big brands would just shove stuff out and they'd go throw all their fancy infrastructure everywhere and do some massive build out. That's cool and all. But the analogy I always use is the big beer was kind of like the rich kid with a pool in high school where everybody partied on their dime, but nobody respected them. You know, <laughs> right. that's the best way to describe it. Like, I'm going to buy my right. friends, right? But right. We deep down don't really fucking care about them, you know? Right. And our thing was, we <laughs> did care about it. The other thing is, just a lesson for everybody, and, and I'm even doing it now at Liquid Death, is that take care of the little people. And what I mean by that, and, and, and I don't mean a little like in stature, but like the bar back, the dishwasher, the lifty at the ski area, the waitress, you know what I mean? The, the valet. Like take care of those people that never get any love. It's not rocket science, but all the marketing people expect. Like if I went to work, talk to a resort, I rarely talk to anyone in the resort, like corporate, like marketing department. What we did was we'd go to a, a resort and made sure you could not get off that resort without finding a, a Pabst for Opre. We just locked in the bars and we went in the bar and said, hey, like I did some goggles with a brand called Air Blaster, which worked out great because they're unisex. You can't hide them, the brand, but you could only get it if you knew someone. You know, and then we ended up doing a program with it yeah. where you got a coaster and a, you could, you know, that kind of thing. But it was it, the big success was that part. Again, Big Beer maybe took a run at that, but they got the wrong people. They were even copying the fact that we had canned cards. Our card literally wasn't perhaps, you know, can, which just stopped right. people and they'd want to read it and whatever. And the next thing you knew, one of the other companies, and again, I'm never going to get credit to these guys because they're so unoriginal. One of the brands was running around doing the same thing with their cans. Yeah. So like, yeah. 
super original guys. Way to go. I think there's something that you mentioned earlier in the conversation that I want to come back to because I think it's kind of, if not at the core of this, I think it's certainly a key tension to Pabst's rise, to PBR's rise over all these years. I mean, you mentioned the field managers who are going out into the local markets and who are understanding authentically what you know, uh, that market is doing and drinking and what those people care about. And that's core to the success, right? And, and I, I buy that, that, that tracks, right? And like, it's harder for a big company to do that than a small company for all the reasons you've already described, right? Like the lack of agility, the, 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 the layers of approval process, the, the consideration, legal considerations, not that PBR was doing anything illegal, but getting sign off from a massive integrated, you know, CPG firm, uh, from the legal department is much different than, you know, running and gunning and saying, hey, get in a cab with eight cases of PBR and like, go meet Mike D, you know, like, so there's some built in advantages there. But the thing I wanted to come back to is you mentioned this idea of sort of like the hipster and hipsterism, right? And you you mentioned it specifically in context of agencies wanting a piece of, of PBR because they want it maybe as an image play for them. They want a branding play for their agency um, because it's a good look for them. And they use the concept of hipsterism to pitch you on, you know, why they should be the one to take your brand to the next level or whatever the pitch may be. And they're like the tension there that sort of like I want to draw out a little bit is that as PBR gets, you know, more and more successful over the course of the odds, it becomes a genuine phenomenon. It's not selling volume in the way that Bud Light or Coors Light or Miller Light is selling. Of course, it, it, those are basically untouchable brands from a volume perspective, but it is gaining, the growth rate is tremendous and its cachet is uh, at that time indisputable, right? Like these are, this this brand is is unironically one of the coolest brands, beer brands in the country um, at that time. And what that does, it brings drinkers, right? And it brings more customers to the fold, but it also brings people who want a piece of it on the on the agency side or on the corporate side of things, which creates this tension that is sort of innate to the concept of uh, of hipsterism anyway, which is like, all right, how much of this is is a real thing? How much of this is an invention of marketing? Like, are we, these people are supposed to be, you know, sort of like gatekeepers of, of cool. Uh, but they're also sort of, you know, the sort of thing that a lot of people make fun of or, or it's a punchline. Right. And so it strikes me that like agencies bringing that to you and saying, Hey, we want to, we want to bring, you know, PBR, to the next level with this type of marketing or looking at this demographic or, or, you know, we understand hipsters better than anyone. Um, it strikes me as like, kind of, uh, like very, there's a symmetry there, right? Is that like that tension with between PBR going with a big flashy agency and the tension of hipsters and hipsterism to the extent that that was even a thing, you know, being sort of this thing that's both popular and also reviled because it's popular. Uh, those things strike me as like sort of parallel. Do you see, I know that's not really a question, but do you see kind of where I'm going with that? Like it's, it seems like there's PBR is at the nexus of a couple big, like cultural and corporate sort of struggles for ownership of the zeitgeist at that point. Does that track for you? Yeah. And everyone loves the underdog, you know? And I think that that, that would really played in our favor, you know, but I, it, it, it's very annoying just speaking for me being in marketing all these years when people see a fad or a trend or seeing, and then they, they try to hitch their wagon to that, sure. but it's so inauthentic and so fake. And I think that 
when I say that, I'm, it's not to say that there aren't really good agencies out there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. Mike, the founder of Liquid Death, is an ex-creative, right? But the reason why he started Liquid right. Death is because he was so sick and tired of said agency. I'm sorry, they would he would pitch really good ideas, and these big brands who wanted to be cool would pick his his he thought his weakest idea, and finally just and this is we're talking Netflix, Nike, really big brands that he worked on. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, with it, it was it was annoying to me the fact that again back to Liquid Death, like people four years ago when all we had was one can to work with kind of didn't give me the time of day, like good luck with your canned water. Yeah. And now they're coming mm-hmm. back to me pretending we're friends, you know? And that happened a lot with PAPS where people didn't give us the time of day. And it was funny because, you know, we could never afford to pay for some huge Live Nation partnership, which we had now at, at Liquid Death. They're actually a partner of ours. We're not paying in money. It's like they're a partner. But yet Lollapalooza stole our blue ribbon logo and we're selling trucker hats in 2010, I want to say. And that was part of the thing. But we didn't, we didn't have the finances to, to like sue them cease and desist because they were stealing our likeness it was a total ripoff of the blue ribbon but it said lala in the middle but right. to me i also speak out of both sides of my mouth that's part of the cultural fabric there like we were that's you, people can identify that logo and like the fact that Lollapalooza wanted to be so get street cred and copy our logo right that's pretty cool and we saw that happening a lot and that's that was another thing where to see brands swipe our logo and and swap it out with the name of their company, whether it's a, you know, that, that's, that's, you can't put a price tag on that either. That means that's brand equity. That's building yep. brand equity where, and, and the other thing on that part is, and I'm going to call them out right now. Please. The distributor, the distributor we had for Denver was Coors Distribution. Okay. Sure. And it got back to me that, you know, Red Rocks, which is again, right below where I live in Evergreen, amazing, yeah. iconic music venue. We had gotten our, I think it was our pounder can. I want to see what I get in there. Long story short, we came to found out basically that they were short ordering or delivering to Red Rocks because they knew they'd blow through the paths right away and everyone was forced to buy the Coors product, which was really shady, right? Like yeah. just like, and I had the GM of the warehouse. I had to be at the distributor one day and he said, hey, I got to tell you something. We really need a lot more POS, point of sale. We need all the more swag. We know this and the PAP stuff. And I was like, okay, why? Like, you know, we're not, we don't. At the time, sales-wise, weren't touching the Coors portfolio. He said, because everybody's stealing it. He goes, nobody, <laughs> our workers are stealing out of the warehouse all the PAPS stuff. Yeah, Everything yeah. else sits there. All the other brands were just sitting there. But anything that had that PAPS logo was being stolen. And you could argue, well, that's not cool. Don't steal. I don't condone stealing. I'm just saying brand equity. It's like they, they, were, they were sick of wearing the golf shirt with another brand on it, whatever. They wanted our black T-shirts. Okay. We, everything went from when I started red, white, and blue, we started doing black. Okay. Black hats, black shirts, where people freaked out on that. Yeah, yeah. We just switching up. And, but then again, you know, not that we caught it. It wasn't any one person, but you know, what, look what happened with the LA Kings hockey team moved it. Sure. When they changed it, all yeah, to yeah. all black. Look when Atlanta Falcons changed to all black. They went from literally the bottom of the barrel NHL, NBA, NFL to being the top five seller. Yeah. Some of yeah, black. Yeah. But my point is, the fact that people were saying we're having trouble at bars. Like, I mean, literally neons were being stolen out of bars. Ripped like off the last wall. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And so any of the tackers, any of that. And that's when I was like, no, we're not going to replenish it. You know, and that wasn't fully my call. I mean, the sales needed POS. But in my brain, I was like, everybody wants what they can't have. Right. So if we limit how much is out there, it's going to create even more fever pitch. So that was to me where here we're in their house. And I think it really annoyed Coors that we were just literally their shining star, but they didn't want to admit it. You know, <laughs> right, but they were our distributor, right. and we, we kind of we were kind of hand tied because they of were course. our distributor, right? But we're our, our product, and they did have some Paps branded trucks. Don't get me wrong, but it was just it it was something where it was funny to see 
Well, were you even like the bee of the bonnet? You yeah, know, yeah, internally yeah. over there. I love so. that. I love every aspect of that story. I love the fact that they were short ordering to Red Rocks, which is again, like as you said, shady, but another this is like one of those behind the scenes moves that distributors all over the country since time immemorial have done to this or that brand to, you know, bring sort of the soft power that they bring in the middle tier. That's one of the many ways that they exert it. So that's an incredible detail. The fact that people are stealing PBR merch out of the warehouse is killer. I mean, what could you add? Nothing better that you could ask for. And then the fact that it's cores, uh, which is, you know, as, as far as brand sort of you know, company ethos goes in the beer industry, they are by far the most conservative, by far the most staid and, and you know, uptight at that point. Um, even though they'd become a lot more corporate at that time, PBR coming into their backyard and just annoying the shit out of them. Man, that's killer. I love that. <laughs> well, the other thing is, you know, which I, I don't condone on that point with it is I realized too, it's a, and I learned, I don't, I didn't know I was going to be in the beverage industry. I had no clue. I certainly don't know yeah, yeah. the beer industry. But it was funny to me that I could tell with the reps, they all know if you deal with a distributor, none of them are going to really lift a finger unless they're incentivized. They just aren't. So there's right. always, every time you go in the distributor, there's always some chart on who can win what, whether it's a trip or a jet ski or a set of golf clubs. I don't know. And they really wouldn't give us the time of day. But as soon as we became the brand, they weren't selling anymore. They were taking orders. And that's when all of a sudden yeah. they were like, yeah, we love that. So I go, really? So you're the guy who wouldn't lift a finger with a super tight golf shirt on. You wouldn't even give us the time of day. And now you're pretending like you're the reason why we're successful. <laughs> like, let them think what they want to think. That was fine. But I just remember going, how the dare you people who didn't give us the time of day, even these distributors, and now it, people are they're having to pack their trucks with our product. Because I would go on these crew yeah. drives where I would go out and I would literally go out in the field. And I still do it to this day with Liquid Death. And it, it's good for me because I can see the market. I understand how retail works and how you have to reset someone and how, you know, the displays and all the things we had to do. But I saw that literally from you're a pain in the ass to all of a sudden, oh, you're our golden child. Not me, but yeah. the brand. And I was yeah, like, yeah. really? So this is just life lesson. Just be cool. Just be cool from the get-go <laughs> and give people a chance, right? And they yeah. didn't give us a chance because we were the crappy college beer or you know whatever it was. And it's like, call us what you want to be called, man. We're still selling. So- Yeah, no, right on. Be cool, uh, wholesalers is a longstanding editorial message here at the Taplines podcast. Uh, We would love the middle tier to be chill. Um, We still await the day that that happens, but we look forward to it very much. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, we mentioned earlier in the conversation, we mentioned that Pabst is a brewing company. PBR is the brand that is mostly synonymous with it in most drinkers' minds. And certainly at this time, you know, we're talking again in you know the late aughts and then uh, the turn of the teens there, so early teens. You know, you you joined two thousand nine and and uh, you're with Pabst until twenty eighteen. During that period. Pabst has already done a bunch of acquisition of beloved regional brands. It does more acquisition of these sort of like, you know, these these local quote unquote uh, heritage brands uh, in markets across the country where small regional breweries have either already shut down or are hanging on for dear life because they just can't compete anymore. They don't get it. They, they can't market well. They don't have the economy of scale, yada, yada, yada. So I'm talking about, um, I'm talking about, you know, Rainier. I'm talking about Lone Star. I'm talking about Olympia, uh, Stroh's, I think at, at some point perhaps picks up as well. So all of these beers that are, you know, those names will be familiar to a lot of listeners. A lot of, all of these beers across the country 
have genuine like authenticity. They have real brand equity to use a marketing term. They have cachet. People have fond memories of these companies, of these brands, but they barely exist anymore, right? Like, or, or they already don't. The breweries are already gone. Um, Pabst, as part of its strategy, comes in and scoops up a lot of these brands and um, you know sees an opportunity there to keep them going and to and to build out sort of that that regional affinity into something you know lo- that looks more like a enterprise level strategy. Tell me a little bit about how that the larger constellation of beer labels in the Pabst portfolio, um, you know, sort of informed and also is informed by your work at PBR at that time. Yeah. I mean, I was fortunate to dabble in some of these other brands like, um, Colt 45 being one of them. Um, little known fact, one of the founders of vice magazine and I went to high school together, which is really funny. We actually had done some (laughs) work with which one, uh, Sarouche, I'll be. And I went to high school together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We went went to high school together. And it's funny because Sarouche, though we weren't like super tight, he was older than me. Mm. The reason why we got along well is that um, we would always see each other at punk shows. So we'd we'd just kind of give the nod across the room, like whatever. But we had in that way. And we kept in touch um, after high school when he started Vice. I was at Airwalk Footwear. That was my, that's a whole nother story. Um, And we placed one of the first ads when it was just paper with Vice. So he and I kept in touch. But, um, I was, uh, I'm friends with, it's called OM Records out of the Bay Area. And we ended up doing a 45 single that literally I have it over here, but I'm not going to pull it out. But uh, the the vinyl looks like beer, but it was with um, Lando Calrissian on the front and it was with people on the stairs and it was a 45. My point is we were able to do things that we want to do with Paps or hadn't, but we, we kind of use the same ethos and approach with these smaller brands, whether it was Rainier, Old Style, Old Milwaukee, Schlitz, Schlitz Malt Liquor. So we did these one-off little things. Like we did some grip tape with with, with Mob Grip, the skate brand, for yeah. Schlitz Malt Liquor. You know, so and people are like, "What is this?" And it was just, "Where did this come from?" Yeah, just kind of infiltrate and fun little projects. But we ended up having brand managers oversee these various brands, Olympia, and and they are their local heroes. You know, and it was like, how can we do one-off fun projects with this? So it kind of the little smaller brands learned from what we were doing at Paps, and in some ways, it was fun to kind of. Hey, let's let's do it with this brand because it that's almost too small for Paps. You know what I mean? It's like we want to affect something, you know what I mean, with these <laughs> right. brands. And it was fun to see right. like Natty Bo. Um, we had the Natty Bo character and the guy who managed that brand was Baltimore. running around Baltimore and we do the, doing these crab boils for fun. Like you come outside of an Orioles game and all of a sudden there's a crab boil and this guy's standing there with the outfit and trying to just do it how you do it locally versus again paying some experiential marketing company to F it up, you know? Like, no, do it legit. And he yeah. had no budget, yeah, but yeah. it was he was solo. But it was like, how do we speak to these consumers and and just you, you have to learn first. Like you have to be part of it, just whether it is lurking in the bars or looking at events and seeing who these consumers are, what are they act, what are the things that they really what speaks to them versus just shotgunning it in there, which most companies do without thinking about it. And they get their token photo yep. and, and present it in a boardroom in a PowerPoint, and that's the end of that. No one cares. They check the box, they move on. We weren't box checkers. We I don't think ever once was it like, this is where all the things we needed to hit. And you better check those boxes. That was never in our vernacular, ever. It yeah, was like, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, you you do what's best, what feels right for the brand. It won't be detrimental. And so we kind of, back to your original question, with our regional brands that we had, we, we just wanted to take nuggets that we'd learned from Paps and, and apply it to these smaller brands. And it was fun. It was fun because some people were like, oh, man, I forgot about this brand. Or some of them had never seen it before. But that's really cool what you're doing with that brand, yeah. you know? 
and the stakes are, you know, I don't want to say it's low stakes, but like it's mostly upside, right? A lot of these brands were were not selling well. That was part of the reason that Paps bought them in the first place is they were cheap because they were they were kind of flailing as brands. So you got to do a bunch of cool shit. And if it hits, great. Like this stuff, you know, all of a sudden we're moving cases of Rainier that, you know, like that or of Olympia that, you know, we weren't seeing that type of volume out of these brands before. That sounds like a hell of a lot of fun. Well, and yeah, to people forget too that we had a brewmaster. I mean, this wasn't just let's slap a label on a different can and bottle and it's it's the same liquid. I mean, that's not, you know, let me give you an example of how taste does matter. And some of this, I have a very good relationship with Loveland Ski Area, which is sure. where I... I probably, it's half hour from my house. I ride during the winter as many times a week as I can. I know the management, it's, it's family owned. And I was able to get Red Bull in there early on. And then we got Paps there, which sold amazingly well. We started getting more and more traction with Rainier. And so I worked with the distributor and worked with the local salespeople. We got Rainier into Loveland and it outsold Paps. So wow. that was the light bulb went off there. And we're like, wow. Like, and it was doing great in the Northwest. But that was an example of like, people weren't just buying it because, oh, it's the new Paps where it actually, there's a, good tasting beer. Not that Pabst is bad tasting, but, but you know, the beer business in general, you know, everyone's got their palate. Everyone wants to argue about what's in their beer. Whatever. Sure. Relax. Like this is something that you might <laughs> hate. You, whatever you like, it's going to be that kind of stable. If that's what's in the room, I can stomach that. It's, yeah. it's good. But that was a case where we were like, whoa, there's, there's really a following here. And that's from Colorado when they're, you know, they're, they have their flag planted in Seattle, you know, but yep. it was cool to see that where, you could say it cannibalized our business, but it was still coming out of the same bucket. It was still a Paps, a PBC, Paps Brewing Company brand. Yeah, you know? yep, yep. So, yeah, you uh, when you were talking about like bigger brands like checking the box, whereas PBC, you know, not not doing that, actually living the life. I'm reminded of I was at a certain uh, macro brewer, their headquarters in St. Louis. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Anheuser Busch. This is InBev days, where it's like 2014 or so, I want to say. And they they had brought me down there for I forget even what the junket was, um, but they had like a concert series in the parking lot or whatever. They had they had live bands playing in the parking lot. It was cool. It was you know whatever. They AB has tons and tons of money. They bring a musician out and and it's going to be a good show. And I'm standing next to uh, someone on their like communications or marketing team while the band is sort of like vamping. You know they're in between songs and they're doing a little crowd work. The lead singer is. And uh, the marketing guy next to me is muttering like, say Bud Light, say Bud Light, like as though like trying to like will it to make it happen type of thing. It's like when you talk about checking boxes, I think immediately about that lived experience of being, of st- this guy's like vibrating with anxiety that like, oh my God, he might not mention the brand during like the interlude, you know? <laughs> it's just like, yeah, oh, so very different ethos there. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, we actually had it happen on that note. Um, we had ended up, as the brand progressed, um, doing the, it's called Project Paps, where we did these our own music festivals. Instead sure. of just latching on to these, like we did our own. So we did them in Portland, Denver, Philly, and Atlanta. And we had Ice Cube, uh, a couple of them, which, by the way, couldn't be a nicer guy and very professional and um, quite entertaining, actually. just I met him before he was uh, performing. And he, you know, if you, anyone recalls, he was uh, promoting Coors Light, I think it was. And he got yes, on stage. Yes, that's right. That's yeah, right. He, he got on stage and it was packed for his set. Packed. And it was poor learning. It's funny because I was shooting photos at the time. And it, it took us all by surprise. And it was a snippet we hung on to. But he he literally, in front of everyone, between songs, goes, F Coors Light. What did he say? You know, I, I'm totally butchering this. But like, 
I fuck with PBR, whatever. And he was drinking a beer, whatever. And it was just like the biggest, I'm thinking, <laughs> dude, you just, you just imploded your bridge with that brand. But we, no one asked him to do anything, but he saw this crowd and how everyone was so excited. And the majority of the crowd was just a bunch of white males, you know, and females. Like it was just like, but they were there to support him and his art and what he does. Yeah, and he yeah. was like, this is fucking cool. Like yeah. what I'm doing here, otherwise I'm getting paid to do this and they want me to do a shout out and I'm not doing a shout out to your yep. point of Bud Light guy. Which yep, yep, yep. I'd sad to say that that's with most brands and most things like that. They they sit there fretting about because the they business. need to get that yeah, 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 right, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's their job security, you know. Yeah, sure. And we were never put to that standard of they need to post, they need to mention anyway. Because as soon as you do that, as soon as you approach someone, no matter even if you think they're the coolest guy or girl in the world, I guarantee you internally, mentally, there's a little block that's going when you just no, don't tell me what to do. You know, yeah. people don't like to be told what to do. So yeah, it's, it's very it's, fake, and consumers can figure out. When it's a paid placement, even now more so than ever, right? Like in that, it just I feel like one of the things I I would love to sort of in the in the remainder of our time, I'd like to sort of look. We've been looking back at your time at Pabst, and we're, again we're talking, you know, mid to late aughts, and then all the way through the end of last decade. I think the shift there, I'd like to look forward a little bit, or you know, maybe like figure out sort of placing this back in the contemporary context, obviously now you're working at Liquid Death, which is a very hot brand, non-alcoholic, but takes, you know, we've mentioned, you've mentioned at different points in this conversation, how some of the things you learned at Paps, you learned at Red Bull, you learned at Airwalk, have informed what you've gone on to do, you and your team have gone on to do um, at Liquid Death. I think like one of the things that really interests me about PBR and this story and this moment that you were there, this, this period that you were there, is that this stuff cannot, by definition, it cannot last forever, right? Like everything is cyclical, consumer tastes are cyclical and, and notoriously fickle in that like sort of tension that I was poorly trying to articulate earlier between sort of corporate forces and, you know, the forces of cool or of cachet, cultural, you know, sort of affinity, like that sort of struggle is always going to morph into something else. And it's going to, oftentimes it, it, you know, the corporation wins, right. And absorb or the corporate forces win and absorb that cool. And then cool goes somewhere else, right. It becomes, that's no longer cool. And, and everyone moves on to something new because those big aircraft carriers simply can't turn that fast. So you've got another few years with the next cool thing before they glom onto it and ruin it. Right. PBR. Um, I wouldn't say it was ruined, and I, you know, I think Vice we mentioned earlier. Like, I wouldn't say it's ruined, but everyone reads the headlines. Vice is now unfortunately in bankruptcy. PBR has struggled with sales in you know the past few years because, in part, because no one's drinking as much beer as they used to be. So you know that's part of it, certainly, but also because the culture is moving on and moving into new directions, right? And I'm curious to hear, you know, you've had so much experience sort of like at the bleeding edge of, you know, or at the vanguard of sort of like marketing authentic culture in a commercial context. And you've done it at several different places. You have moved where the cool is right now. Like one of the cool things, the coolest things going and not to flatter you, but like anyone who's out there knows that Liquid Death is is a very, very cool brand at the moment. You've moved to where like the cachet is. I'm curious, like your perspective, having done this a bunch of times, how the brands that, you know, sort of like get to that level, get to PBR's level, like how do they evolve once the spotlight maybe dims a little bit? 
it wasn't a flash in the pan. I don't want to say PBR was a fad again. I mean, it's a, it's a very old brand, but hopefully you understand what I'm saying here. Like there was a shining moment for PBR. It's not currently like the, the prettiest bell at the ball or whatever analogy you want to use. What happens to a brand then? I mean, it's still authentic. It's still itself, but so many other cultural factors have sort of flooded into that space and made it so, you know, consumers move on. What happens then, Sticks? Well, you know, it's a really good question because I, I truly don't know exactly who the PBR consumer is right now because the, mm. the, the guys and girls that made us cool are in the suburbs with kids now, you know? <laughs> right, and so, right. Right, you know, and it's so, but I think that well, the one thing that, that Paps has in its corner is they do have that authenticity and do have that brand equity that many beer companies have never even come close to having. Mm. And, it, and it may not equate sales-wise, but I think that if I was in the driver's seat of Paps, um, I would reassess what got them there. And I think that, again, you can't be everything to everyone, but you don't want to forget your roots. And I think that those people are, are very important and it may not be the growth that some of the people in finance want to see. And, you know, I, I cannot stress that enough that to be authentic, you can't be worried about being scaled or ROI because that will come, but you have to be patient. And I think if, when, when I think of the way perhaps and the, the crew that I worked with, we knew how to get it in the right people's hands. But, you know, some things may not be as cool anymore, you know, but like, if you think about the pillars of things that we approached, it was, you know, lifestyle marketing, you know, argue any kind of sport, whether it's action sports, right. But it was in a PAPS way, like kickball was a thing for a minute. We were, we did actual PAPS kickballs, you know, functional branding. Art is always going to be around, but it's a matter Mm -hmm. of how you do it. And as a matter of fact, the guy that created the PAPS art program from scratch, the whole can art program, everything, he's now works with me at Liquid Death. He oversees all that. He gets it on how to do it. And art's never going to die. That's been around for centuries, right? But it's how you do it. The problem is the big beer brands will run around and go, oh, we need to, oh, oh it's South by Southwest. We need to paint every a mural of our can, whatever, and pay an artist and, and <laughs> artist should get paid. But it's totally not that it looks lame. You know, it looks stupid, right? Yeah, yeah. But I think that to answer your question, anytime you've had the success, you've got to sit back and go, what got us there? How did we do that? And how do we replicate it? Knowing that people, you know, now everything's changed with social media. I mean, when I started at PAPS, there was no Instagram, you know, there was Twitter kind of, you know, but it wasn't what it has become now. And, you know, TikTok, look at the way, I mean, I, and I speak to, I'm very proud, like you know, our TikTok or Liquid Death is second to none, you know, but we have someone concentrating just on TikTok. But I think that, you know, brands have to step back that have had their flash in the pan, so to speak, and go, all right, let's regroup. Let's not shotgun things everywhere and figure out what things really will, again, move the needle culture for the brand, but we're there supporting and it's not a take, take, take. And I think a lot of brands, oh, we got our, as again, the box checking where else, and we're going to, we're going to be a culture vulture and come in and just swipe from that industry or everything and, and claim it's ours, but then not really do anything more. And I think if you revisit that pen, you, you build this strong foundation of people that support you, that is dangerous. And I think if, again, if I was at PAPS today, I would sit back and think of, all right, my time here, what made us successful back in the day? And I'm not saying you can, it'll recreate that fever pitch, but you will still have that core following and, and kind of, as long as you stick the ethos of the brand, you'll be okay. But I think that when people deviate and then they, they hit panic button, that's where it creates problems, you know? So that's what I would do, you know, if I was there now. And again, it's not a, it's a great liquid and I think it still has its place for sure. It just, like I said, the people that really made it, put it on the map are older now. But 
perhaps shouldn't be scared by that because I heard the same thing from major energy rank, not Red Bull, where they're, they're not panicking, but they're like, wow, the, 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 where's the next wave of youth to wrap their hands sure. around our brand? And they're concerned with it. So every brand runs into this, right? And so- And every, yeah, just, sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, so that's what I would do, but I'd say that it would, you can't, as people have gotten older, I mean, it, expect you're going to get the same results from the same things, you know, hanging your hat on the same thing. You, you do have to expand. Dead fish follow the stream, as the saying goes, right? Right. So you just, you've <laughs> got to keep looking out for new avenues and things. And again, think of things, as I said earlier, where no one has tapped into that market, pun intended, where in our case, I mean, it got to the point where we were literally on some of the menus of these finer restaurants where it had in the back of the menu, it said $5 charge where PBRs for the staff. And you could pay extra and just to take care of the busters, the dishwashers, anyone, you know what I mean? That was brilliant. And it was sure. funny because we'd be in these high-end restaurants and it'd be all this fancy stuff. And then there'd be a can of, to them, they got a little street cred. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah. they're, they're kind of, they're getting a little dirty, you know, there was totally. like, you know, they're hit, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think PBR, you know, just to sort of like jump on that is that like, there was always, I think like this really compelling patina or like je ne sais quoi, whatever you want to call it of sort of like class divide and of wrong side of the tracks and of blue collar ism. Now, why it was compelling is a major, you know, and at times kind of like gross sort of like discussion to have, right? Like there's, there is culture vulturism in some context, not that PBR was necessarily doing, but the way people think about it, like, Ooh, let's slum it. Like, let's get PBRs or like, Oh yeah. Like the back of house, like drinks PBR. Cool. That's cool for them. You know, like, so there's something going on there. I think, or there's a lot of things going on there that are, that get into weightier conversations about, you know, race, class, sort of like stature or status in America. But that all is upstream of the fact that the cool thing to do was to buy the back of house PBRs, you know, like that's all wrapped into that. And and it's benign by the time it gets to the actual point of sale where it's like, Hey, let's, let's tack on around for the kitchen. Um, Sticks, I want to leave you. We've gone the distance and, and I thank you so much always for your time and candor. But the last thing before you go, we've talked a lot about how PBR, you know, was a key to its success was being really locked in on its local markets, having those field managers. You made the point that it took a team to do this. It was absolutely not just you, um, but you were involved in a lot of it. I'm curious if there's one instance that stood out. I mean, describe some of the marketing gambits that you did over the years. I would love to hear one that you were particularly proud of or uh, was particularly fun for you in getting PBR into these local markets um, in a way that was authentic. If there's something that you had you know, done over the years that, um, that you feel like really sort of got at what the brand was or, or what you thought the brand should be um, in a way that was fun, anything jump out to you? Well, for me personally, because my background is a product developer, that's what I did at Airwalk. I built snowboard boots. So that's a whole other story. <laughs> but understanding like timelines, raw material production, I was given a very wide berth to do some one-off products, functional branding, so to speak, mm-hmm. that weren't for sale. And again, everybody wants what they can't have. But you know, sure. whether it was a Leatherman, a Woolrich blanket, a union binding, I did a BMX bike. Um, so those were, I know, more material items than what you're asking, but I, I really have to tip my hat to our field marketing crew because they came up with some amazing ideas. Like, for instance, the guy that we had in Philly did a thing. It was very grassroots and it kind of just spread virally called dumpster diving. But it was so hot in Philly this one summer <laughs> that he, 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 he rented, I can't make this up, 
he rented dumpsters and put them on blocks and filled them with water. And they were just became ad hoc pools for Fantastic. people. Of course, it was totally illegal. He got in trouble. It made the news. But you, again, <laughs> he didn't do it to go make the news. Like you have right, to right, right. do that. But the other thing is, like, look, let's look at a, um, strip clubs. We had a guy in the South who had a little program called Bloobs. And it was literally these stickers that he had. It was like you pass the room whatever, with the sticker had a very uh, pendulous breast. It was just funny. But bosom. Like, yeah. Yeah, bosom. Yeah. <laughs> but no one had really showed you because, you know, strip clubs are kind of taboo, right? Like you don't really talk yeah, about it. It's something yeah. that's in our cultural fabric here in the United States. So everyone had come up with these funny, but it spoke to their market or, and it could be even bigger than that. But it was really fun to see that we have countless examples. So I, I'm kind of deferring to, to the, the field crew that we had and the crew we had internally in marketing where we were just kind of empowering the people and letting them do these, these fun off, one off things. Everything, you know, it, it could be the bike polo that, that used to be a thing down, down the way. Yep. You know, Big you know, time. Yeah, yeah. A lot of, lot of things with, we, we supported obviously, again, a ton of the arts, a ton of the music and action sports too. But it was literally through these viral little moments, but they were never, ever did we go, oh, we need to get press. At Red Bull, it was all about how do we get the media to get eyes on us? That was all Red Bull thing, but they also could afford to put someone in a space capsule. For us, we're like, no, we're working with nothing. But that, that part of it, should, everyone should be very proud of that I worked with because we had very little to work with, but we had everything to work with because we had brand equity. And I cannot stress that enough where it was bigger than the liquid. It was bigger than the brand. It, I, mean, this, I mean, this is my water cup, for God's sake. I mean, this is a beautiful label. It is beautiful. And you can see it from a mile away. You know? And that, that's why even at our events, we would always make sure we had the bigger cans because unless you're like Shaquille O'Neal, there was no way you could hide that can in photos. Like you would see, you'd see the edge of the blue, the, the ribbon right here. You know, you'd yeah. always see people carrying it. It was like, we were never going to ask people to pose, you know, with a can. It was always these really, really quality consumer content before this, you know, consumer driven you know, content, all that stuff is right. generated content. Sorry. And so those were really UGC, our UGC, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, yeah, UGC. But that was literally our secret weapon was basically our customers. And, and not forcing them, but getting this money. And they would, they would do it for us. You know, they're the ones spreading the word for us. So, but it really did come down to, again, giving a little bit of the tools locally in these markets to have the fun. And for let, let them, again, decide for themselves what PAPS meant to them. And as soon as people get the power to do that, and they're empowered to do that, it is dangerous what you can do as a brand. And we're really good at trying to keep out of their way. You know, we had little guardrails here and there. Being alcohol, we had to be careful. So don't, sure. don't, we did have a total risk management. Like we did have legal, but for the most part, I can tell you right now, and I'm very proud to say that it wasn't always following the legal guidelines in these cities, states, whatever, but no one got hurt. No one got thing. We never had anything, any blowback. You know, it would have been more of just, you just got to be a little careful because the liquor law being you have to be 21, right? But I can tell you, honestly, right now, I'd be lying to you if I said that I didn't want us to be the Aspire 2 beer for teenagers. Like that was the beer you had to have. Of course. Right? Yeah. That was that, that one I can admit now, but it was never something that I would say, you know. Of course. Yeah. And every every single beer marketer behind closed doors is going to say the exact same thing. And we appreciate your candor here on Taplines for bringing that out into the open, because now that you're not in the business anymore, you can admit sort of how that business runs. I mean, obviously, I cover it as a journalist and, and I write about that, but it's very rare that you hear that type of like, you know, frank admission from someone who is still in the business. Of course, now that you work on the non-alcoholic side with liquid death, you know, teenagers should be drinking liquid death. Why not? There's no alcohol in it. Enjoy the sparkling water, kids. Exactly, exactly. You know, and I found that I'm a mentor for the lead school of business at the University of Colorado because I really enjoy 
helping, just helping, first of all, but it's a lot, you know, it's career advice or even helping them with, with certain things that they're maybe will be in their um, uh, schooling. But, you know, not drinking is, is kind of the cool thing, right? It's become and quite so, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's quite cool. And so, yeah, but I'd be lying to you if you say that, I mean, this, the can that I'm holding right now, our sparkling, I mean, it, it purposely looks like a Guinness. I mean, we definitely yep. think, but it's a placebo effect, right? Because people are like, you have that can in your hand versus a glass of the lime in it. It's just a little more, and it stays colder. You know, we, we celebrate the fact that it's good for people who are designated drivers. It's good. We even have, you know, James from Metallica. Metallica's an investor. We're on their world tour. He's sober, loves the fact he can have a can in his hand, you know? So yep. taking advantage of that yep. as well, you know? But there is there is that social acceptance thing or unacceptance. What do you want to look at it? But you're at a party and you don't want to keep being asked why you're not drinking. I mean, people, you have this in your hand and probably deflects a lot. You know, but we want to celebrate that. And then people, we just want to make it so you know, drinking water is cool. And then lastly, the most important thing is, is bring in to the forefront the importance of sustainability with our plastic. What a problem it is. So it's really that. Sure. Like, let's, let's make drinking water cool and bring the fight, you know, the forefront, this plastic problem. And we donate a portion of proceeds to clean up the plastic. So that's my little elevator on liquid death. But that's really the own split. Let, let's have some fun. And why is it that everything that's so horrible for you has the most fun marketing? <laughs> and we're no one's done anything. Name a natural food, something that's really good for you. Name one, a food or drink that is so cool that you'd see kids wearing the shirt or a yeah, band. Don't Name make me one. try to get. I can't even think exactly. of one. No, yeah, of no, course exactly. not. There is, yeah, 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 right, yeah. Bananas, yeah, <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, someone Chiquita. might wear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Someone might wear like a cremats shirt because it's just who would get a cremats shirt or something like that, you know. But for the right, most part, they're wearing right, it's right. like a a tongue in cheek. It's not to joke. But if yeah, you do see yeah. someone wearing a natural foods thing, they're getting paid to do it. That's for sure. Right. So right, right. anyway, but that's, that, I digress. I just, you know, so appreciate you having me on the air. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm proud of my time there and, and proud of the friends I made. And I'm not meaning to sound cheddary here, but I have friends I'll have for life from my time at Paps. And they've all, you know, there's only a few left that, like I said, and God bless them. They, but a lot of branched off to other things now and what they've learned so many brands out there want to mine us for what we did there. And, and I don't think any one of us could say this was the thing that yeah. made Paps what it is. But there's definitely aspects more than anything is we could guide brands on what not to do. And that's oftentimes the most important thing is to not make those missteps. Because, I mean, look at what just happened. Just saying no. Sometimes it's the hardest. Look, yeah, look yeah. at that yeah. little company out of St. Louis just did. And look what happens to their sales. You know, I mean, yeah, that's, sure, sure. that's pretty much a marketing nightmare. You know, yeah, um, Ongo- an and ongoing one, yeah. <laughs> As we yeah, record this te- episode, it, it continues, yeah, 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 yeah. No, and teach their own. Listen, you can do whatever you want to do. That's your thing, but that is an example of thought you were doing something really cool and putting your staking in the ground, and it was like not thought out. And so, if you are going to do that, you really have to study what you're doing. You, you, you got to be ready. As much as yeah. we'd like to say that the last minute things are cool, and they are, and that's again back to what I said. We were successful because. The coolest kids oftentimes don't plan. So the, the, the one-off little punk show or the art show or a little skate comp, whatever it is, we would be there. But you know, we would think long. If it's something we were really going to put effort behind, we wanted to make sure we were because the last thing we we're going to do is ruin our brand equity for making a super, super dumb move, thinking you're like standing for something. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like you've just yeah, alienated yeah. your consumer. And you know, live and learn, right? And so, um, well, and to your point, and we'll, we'll, this is a good way to close. I mean, if you're in an, as little Zodiac zippy boat, you can turn fast. If you're in an aircraft carrier, you can't. And 
running and gunning does not work the same way when you're a big brand versus a small one. And Sticks, thank you so much for coming on Tap Lines. It was great talking to you. I hope you have a great rest of the day. And when we finally get a chance to meet up, we'll have a PBR in one hand and a, and a liquid death in the other. Because we got to stay hydrated, you know? <laughs> of course. Yeah, done, done and done, man. I haven't had a PBR in a while, so it'd be good to crack that seal again. Good. Been a minute. Well, there you go. All right. Thanks so much, man. Take care. Thank you. Taplines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, managing editor Tim McCurdy, and art director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.